morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are in Matthew chapter 12. If anyone needs a Bible, please raise their or raise your hand. We got a couple here. Eric. Matthew chapter 12. We are in verses 22, starting in verse 22. We're going through Matthew chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in, starting in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he plunders uh, his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your word is... is Intense, Lord. And it just really, it's, it, it opens our eyes, it garners our attention, it, it wakes us up, Lord, from our slumber. And Lord, we want every time we get into your word, particularly on Sunday morning, for, for our hearts to be wide open and, and be fully... Uh, fully focused on what it is you're saying, Lord, particularly when your words are so cutting, Lord. And Lord, we know that you love us. We know that... We know from your word that you are loved. We know that it's your gla- it blesses your heart more than anything else to bless us, Lord, and we love you for that. And for that reason, Lord, we... We just focus our our heart and mind on you this morning. We didn't come here, Lord, as we say this often, but we didn't come here, Lord, just to participate in a social gathering or just to hear an interesting message or hear music. We came here this morning, Lord, to to change. We want to change. We want to be different. We want to be like you. We want more of you. We want to be used by you. We want to go out from here and have our lives mean something, Lord. And Lord, we know that by your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll do that. Your word says that you are faithful to do just that, Lord. Please do that with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We left off last week with Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Verses quoted by Matthew from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. 
In these verses, Isaiah is comforting Israel by assuring them that God's promised Messiah will come. And what it is, is Isaiah, he's describing the character of the Messiah so that you'll recognize the Messiah when the Messiah comes. In verse 20, it says, you will recognize the Messiah because you'll see his character. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. The Greek word for bruised here, it it means broken. So just think of broken or shattered reed. Many times when I'm strolling in an open field, I spent summers virtually my whole life on the Cape, and there's these marshes with these reeds, and oftentimes, I don't know if it's just me, but I'll just pick up a reed and stick it in my mouth and chew on it. Well, every once in a while, the reed sort of broken in the middle, right? What do you do with the broken reed? You throw it out. And that's what the world does with broken reeds. A smoking flax, it's the wick of a candle which is smoking. The flame is flickering. It's just about to, uh, to go out. What do you typically do with that? You, you put it out. You replace it. That's what the world does uh, with smoking flaxes. And so when Matthew here in verse 20 refers to a broken reed or a smoking flax, He's referring to a person who emotionally, spiritually, mentally, they're at the end of their rope. They've been broken by sin. They've been burned out by living in the world. If there's anything that can happen when you're living in the world, you can you burn out eventually. It may last, some people are able to last for a year, others for five, ten years, but eventually you burn out. And the world is filled with broken reeds and smoking flaxes, and it gets rid of them. Uh, That's all they know how to do. That's all they're capable or qualified to do. But the prophet Isaiah is saying, you'll recognize the Messiah because for the first time in the history of the world, there will be a person who is equipped to handle broken reeds and smoking flaxes without crushing them. What the world rejects, Jesus restored and is restoring. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Now, it is no coincidence that verse 22, where we began our reading this morning, comes right on, uh, right after, right on the heels of verses 18 through 21. What you have in verse 22 is an extreme example of a bruised reed, a broken reed, a smoking flax. It says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, verse 22, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now, if you're like me, typically when you read this verse, you run right by it to get to the next few verses. But I want to just pause and consider this verse and consider this man. Because this is a living, breathing, bruised reed, a living, breathing, smoking flax. And Jesus is reaching out to this man. So here we see, we have uh, sort of an uh, eyewitness here of how, uh, how Jesus uh, approaches a bruised reed. And I want to talk about this man. You know, so often I'm in a counseling session and uh, I'm talking with someone who's really questioning whether God would ever reach out to them. Because in their heart, they feel dirty, they feel unclean, they, f- they have a history, sometimes a long history of pursuing the lusts of the flesh, and, and they just can't accept the fact, the biblical truth, that God would want them in his life. Remember, when you go to Jesus, it's, it's not only are you coming to Jesus God, and you're becoming a part of his life, he's becoming a part of your life. That's his desires to, 
for you to become part of his life. And, and, but anyway, I'll be counseling people. They just can't grasp why God would want to have anything to do with someone with so much gunk in their life. Well, if there's anyone who ever had gunk in his life, it was this man in verse 22. There's anyone who is so utterly repulsive that he was unworthy to be approached by God, it's, it's this man. He was possessed by a demon, which means that he had lost his independent ability to function. He, th- this, this demon, he was at the mercy of this demon living inside of him. Now, we read about demon-possessed people in the Bible, and I think... Our typical reaction 2,000 years later in our safe bedrooms or wherever, reading the Bible, reading about demon-possessed uh, uh, men or women, we think to ourselves, well, uh, you know, we just feel sorry for them and our heart reaches out to them and we think, you know, I'm, I'm so glad Jesus helped this person because if I ever came across someone like this with this kind of suffering, man, I, I really, I would want to help them. But let me tell you, if you were walking down the street and you ran into a demon-possessed person, that would not be your natural reaction. Your natural reaction would not be to go up to the man and hug him and rub your, you know, run your fingers through their hair or help him across the street. Your natural reaction would be to run as fast as you can in the opposite direction and do everything you can to forget about what you saw, lest it ruin your day. Why do they say that? Again, because of the accounts from the Bible, demon-possessed people, it was typical for them to just scream the vilest insults to everyone passing by. They were violent to themselves and others. Remember in Matthew 8, the demon-possessed man in the land of the Gergesenes, uh, he was violent and so violent he, he had to be chained down because he was cutting himself. And, 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 and they smell, they foam at the mouth, they rip their clothes off. You know, not, not like a pleasant scene that you want as you're coming home from work about to have dinner, you know, at home. You know, you just want to forget about it and, and move on. Your, your natural reaction would be to flee. And yet Jesus reaches out to this man. We spent quite a bit of time in Matthew 9.36 where it says Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. That word compassion means a, a physical sort of reaction that he has. Compassion in the Greek, it means the bowels. He, he was just physically sick when he saw the multitudes and it says that because they were harassed and scattered or in other translations, distressed and dying like sheep having no shepherd. That is who Jesus is. That is the Savior who you serve. That is his heart. In verse 22, when this demon-possessed man is brought before him, he sees, he knows the anguish of his heart. A man who is not only harassed and scattered, distressed and dying, his anguish, listen to this, has blinded him, has silenced him. You know, there have been times in my life where I have known just really heavy, intense anguish. And, and, and you know, I read, I read verse 22, I just sort of slowed down, and, and I, can, I can say, I can honestly say that, that in a very, very small way, I can relate to this kind of anguish. Anguish and distress which reaches the point where it affects your ability to see or speak. Have you ever been just so so low that you, you couldn't even talk? It can happen. 
can even affect your eyesight. Psalm 69, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. I, seek in deep, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's how intense anguish can get in a, in a fragile human soul. And here's a man who is in so much anguish because of the torment of a demon. He's lost his eyesight and his hearing. And Jesus reaches out to him. He restores him. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench until he sends forth justice to victory. Now, if you're one of these people who spend a lot of time trying to figure out why God would ever want you in his life, stop it. Stop it. The Bible says a bruised reed he will not break. The smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles, the nations will trust. Meaning you need to get rid of uh, your man-made ideas about God and you simply need to trust in the God of the Bible. God approached and healed and restored the most repulsive human being amongst the most repulsive human beings on the face of the earth. Certainly, He is willing to restore you. Jesus says that he came for the righteous, not for the sick. I'm going through Mark in my devotion time. And in chapter 2, there's the account of Jesus at Matthew's house. There's tax collectors there. And, you know, when you think of tax collectors, think of these guys who recently they captured who were in the... They were Americans in the Taliban fighting against Americans, shooting at Americans. Now, when that was discovered, there was just such a... This country was just swept with rage. I mean, Americans fighting against Americans. Americans fighting alongside of of the very people who, who rammed a jet into the World Trade Center and killed innocent people. And here these guys are fighting against and shooting other Americans. And so, well, when you think of tax collectors, think of those kind of people. It says there were many tax collectors at the feast with Jesus. Tax collectors were traitors. They were Jews who had uh, betrayed the, uh, the Jews and, and were working on behalf of Rome. Mark 2 says there were also many sinners, usually a reference to prostitutes. There were drunkards and gluttons also with Uh, Jesus. And the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with these people and asked his disciples, how is it that your, uh, how is it that your master eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you're one of those people who have just difficulty believing that God wants a relationship with you, stop it. Stop it. You're the very person that Jesus came for. So in verse 22, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, and, and he who was blind and, and mute spoke and saw. Verse 23 says this. It says, And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Son of David is a term for the Messiah. In another chapter in Isaiah, chapter 35, it says that you will recognize the Messiah when, when the blind see and, and the mute speak. And so uh, they, people see this uh, tremendous miracle and they say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Then in verse 24, uh, it says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub was 
another word for Satan. There's a term for Satan. Jesus had just healed a man in torment here. A man who actually went blind. His soul was so tortured. He lost his ability to speak. Can you imagine the rejoicing among the people to see this man freed from that? It says the multitude was amazed. Can you imagine his mother, the woman who, uh, the mother who, when this man was a baby, rocked him to sleep in her arms, having to witness the, the, her boy, you know, at some point opening up his life into, uh, to the demonic world, which, by the way, is the only way anyone can ever get uh, demon-possessed. But he opened up his, his life to the demonic world, and then she just saw him just slide into, really, a, a living hell. Can you imagine being his mother, the tears can you imagine being his, his brothers? I don't know if he had a wife. Can you imagine being his wife or even his children? And now he is completely healed and restored. Imagine the rejoicing in her heart, the mother's heart. The tears of joy. Can you imagine his brothers and sisters and neighbors? Uh, the rejoicing. And, and here these men, these Pharisees, they just throw a pall of suspicion and confusion and condemnation over the whole party. Tragically, there are always plenty of people to do that. These Pharisees remind me of many religious people today. Someone is wonderfully saved by giving their life to Jesus Christ. A joy comes into their life they've never known. They walk around a church with a big old smile on their face. And, you know, along comes, you know, into the church a, just a somber, religious, dried-up, modern-day Pharisee. But what are you all happy about? Jesus Christ saved me. All my sins are forgiven. You know, I was a miserable wretch, and now there's purpose in my life. There's meaning in my life. There's, there's direction in my life. No, 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 wait a second. You know, before you turn into one of those emotional fruitcakes, you see this 500-page book on theology here? You need to first, you, you need to go memorize this whole thing word for word. You need to throw out your TV. You need to get rid of all your secular CDs. You need to tell everyone you know that all movies are evil. You need to hang out, hand out tracts for four hours every Friday night. Okay, sure, whatever you say. You, you know. Any other advice? Yeah, take that smile off your face. People may think you're having fun. Fun is sin, you know, sort of deal. Romans 14 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there will always and there have always been religious people who have their eyes on men rather than God. They get uncomfortable with what they uh, see uh, as, as joy and attention being drawn away uh, from them. And, and they throw a wet blanket, a wet and very heavy blanket over God's party. Don't let that happen. Jesus didn't. Listen to what he does. He's not about to let them ruin the party. He, he, he gets, actually, he gets pretty much right in their face here. He says, but Jesus knew their thoughts, verse 25, and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus uses a, a very simple and powerful principle. A kingdom divided cannot stand. Any student of history will tell you that the greatest empires this world has ever known, they were not beaten by external enemies. They were beaten from within as divisions were created within the kingdom. 
And so Jesus uh, just brings up the point. He, he, he has come against and cast out a demon. He says, why would Satan come against Satan? The argument makes no sense. So in verse 27, uh, it says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Apparently, uh, there were those associated with the Pharisees who cast out demons, and he's just saying, go ask them who cast out demons. They know full well who casts out demons. It's not another demon. It's, it, you know, it's the Spirit of God, which is what he goes on to, uh, to say here in verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, smell the coffee, guys. Your arguments don't make sense. A man with a demon was cleansed in front of your very eyes. His eyesight was restored. His speech was restored. The kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus is saying. Then he says in verse 29, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. In this verse, Jesus is simply explaining what had just happened, what they just saw. He, we know from Matthew 28, verse 19, that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And in order to heal this man of his blindness and, and his inability to speak, Jesus had to go to the cause of the problem. There was a strong man inside this man's life, and that strong man had to be tied up and cast out before Jesus could go in and cleanse him. And so that's what uh, Jesus is explaining here. Then he goes on in verse 30, moving right along. He who is not, Jesus speaking, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. What does this verse mean? Well, Jesus is the great gatherer of souls. He gathers souls to God, to himself. We, we spent weeks, literally, discussing Matthew eleven twenty nine. Come to me, all you who labor and have laden, and I will give you rest. He is the gather. He gathers people to them himself that they might have salvation, that they may have rest. Satan is the great scatterer of souls. He scatters abroad, Jesus says. He takes lives and tries to scatter them as far away from God as possible. There's a concept in science called uh, centripetal force, another one called centrifugal force. And centripetal force is a force that draws things to the center. A centrifugal force is a force that draws, pushes things out. And, and Jesus, is, he's got the great centripetal ministry drawing man to the center, to the heart of God, to, to order in their lives, to, to love and kindness and patience and self-control and long-suffering. Satan, if, Satan's ministry, if you could call it that, is, is a centrifugal one to push people out, to scatter people as far away from the center as possible, uh, it, it, as far away from the love, the peace, the kindness, the faithfulness, and the goodness. What Jesus is saying in verse 30 is this. Listen carefully. No one will ever be able to get before God and say they were an innocent bystander. No one is ever going to go before God and give an account of their life and be able to say, you know, I was just living on the earth and there were like these forces for good out there and Bible-thumping people and there were these forces for evil and man, they pounded it out and I just like stood back and, whoa, you know, I'm not going to get involved here and, uh, you know, they beat each other up. I was just an innocent bystander. Jesus says, no. No one's ever going to be able to say that. If you remain a bystander, meaning if you choose to refuse God's invitation to have a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, you're scattering abroad. 
you are in effect being used by Satan to, to push people away from the center. And you know, I, I really find this to be true. I mean, when you really think about this, this, this is so true, what, what, what Jesus is saying here. He says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. If someone is really not on board with Jesus, really, if you look at their life, what they're doing is they're, they're pushing people away. You know, even, you look at even the people who are supposedly, appear to be, and I underscore that word appear to be, great moral good people. But they deliberately reject Jesus Christ in their life. What often is the effect is, is, is it draws people away from Christ, away from the center, because people are sort of going out after them and away from God. And, you know, I, I see this, you know, in some of these movies and TV shows, these TV shows about angels. You, you want to get me on a soapbox? Have me get, get me to talk about TV shows about angels, but I, I, won't, I won't get on my soapbox. But, but movies about angels and, and, and heaven and, and like good spirits and, 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 and things like this. And, 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 and I think of some of, the, um, some of the therapy programs out there, like AA and NA and, and, and SA, they talk about a higher power, but there's no mention of Jesus these movies about angels and heaven and stuff like that. No mention of Jesus, just a lot about sort of the, the supernatural. Now, now, don't get me wrong. A lot of these therapy programs, particularly NAA and NA, they have done a lot of good. And I don't even, I do not dispute that. Nor would I push someone out of one of those programs. The problem is, is that people get comfortable with the higher power thing and they get all entrenched in that. And the more comfortable they get, the farther and farther they get away from the center, which is Christ. You see what Jesus is saying? He, he who is not with me is scattering abroad. And, and as people get comfortable with concepts of higher power and angels that supposedly you know, draw you away to heaven and, and, and these types of things, they're just going away from Jesus. They're going away from, from the goodness and the kindness. And so what happens uh, with people is that, you know, after attending AA or NA or whatever for 10, 15, 20 years, you know, looking at these angel movies, you know, after uh, 20 years, they, they, they're sober and, and they're off drugs, but they're still broken reeds. They are still broken reeds. And they're told, look, in order to, to, to make sure you're not completely snuffed out, you've got to stay with us. They're still smoldering wicks. And there's only one person who has the gentleness, the love, the patience, the kindness, the long-suffering to restore a broken reed. Not, not only to sort of keep it just as broken as it is, but, but to completely restore it. And that is Jesus Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not snuff out. Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can do that. A higher power can't do that. You know, really good moral TV shows can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow. These two verses are amongst the most, if not the most, sobering, eye-opening, attention-getting verses in the Bible. I mean, I mean, if you're dozing off to sleep, right? You know, you're dozing off, you're, and you didn't get enough sleep, and you're in your morning Bible study, and, and you're going through the book of Matthew, you come across these verses, whoa, what is he talking about here? You know, unforgivable sin? I thought God forgave all sin. No, it says in verse 31, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. What on earth is that about? What is he talking about? 
it's actually, I really believe, I'm not just saying this, a lot simpler than many have made it to be. Let me just first say there are two mistakes that pastors and teachers make with these verses. One mistake is to sort of cast these verses into sort of a shroud of mystery. I mean, ooh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Who knows what that is? You better watch out or else you'll do it and you'll lose your salvation, you know. And, and what happens, you know, people are just, you know, walk around in and, and fear and anxiety. And, and that's no way for a Christian who's supposed to the Bible, they're commanded to walk, walk in grace and freedom. That's no way for them to be walking. And that's a tragedy, really. The teachers, if, teacher, if a pastor is unwilling to deal with this verse, he should just go do something else, be like a football player or something, I don't know, or a cook or a mechanic, but he shouldn't be a pastor. A second mistake, which is more common, is that pastors water these verses down. What happens, and this is what so often happens, it's, it's the old tickling of the ears thing. They really don't want their congregation to feel uncomfortable or condemned, so they water it down, and they say things like, you know, well, this, this particular sin, it could have only been committed when Jesus was on the earth. After he died, it's impossible to commit. Or, or they'll say something like, uh, you know, this is just such an extreme thing. There's only like a couple people, like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, you know, maybe a couple others, you know, uh, who can commit a sin like this. And, and they, just, they just minimize it. They trivialize it. But that, too, is, is wrong. And l- let me tell you why. I mean, Jesus didn't leave the glories of heaven to waste his words in that way. You know, it should be very clear to anyone, but just let me remind all of us that Jesus didn't come to, in, come to earth, leave the glories of heaven to, to just do the small talk thing. A real nice weather here on the Sea of Galilee, don't you think? <laughs> you know, you don't leave the comforts and the glories of that relationship with the Father to, to, to just come down and talk about that. He didn't leave the wonderful treasures of heaven to come and teach things that were meant for us to just brush aside as not applying to people. He came to earth, yes, supremely to die on the cross for our sins, but there was also another reason, and that was to declare in the most unambiguous way two things. One, the good news of receiving salvation, but also, two, the bad news, the warning of not receiving that. And when Jesus says, as clear as clear can be, there is an unforgivable sin, and that sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, I don't want to get to heaven someday and have to explain to God why I watered down such a obvious, black and white, unambiguous verse. And they're really, the tragedy is there's no reason for these verses to be mysterious, and they're not even scary verses uh, for someone uh, who uh, is a Christian and is walking with God. Now, in fact, I'm convinced that any person in this room, you read chapters 11 and 12 together, just a, a few times you will come out of that understanding what these verses mean. But let's take the shortcut. I'll just explain it right now. What Jesus says here is a, really a continuation of what he said in Matthew chapter 11. And what did he say in Matthew chapter 11? Well, among other things, verse 20, Matthew chapter 11 through 24, I guess let's start in 21. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if by the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The people in those cities, as we discussed a few weeks ago, they witnessed wonderful works of Christ, but in spite of all the overwhelming evidence, they rejected him. 
And so the same thing happens in Matthew 12, verse 20. Right before their eyes, Jesus uh, casts a demon out of a man, and he who was blind and mute uh, uh, saw and spoke. Tremendous miracle. Yet the Pharisees rejected him anyway. But understand this, and here's the key to understanding these two verses. They weren't really rejecting Jesus. The person they were rejecting was the Holy Holy Spirit who was drawing them to Jesus. No miracle, listen carefully, no miracle in and of itself has ever brought anyone to Jesus. No convincing argument. You can speak with the folks who go out on Saturday night about this. No convincing argument, no persuasive reasoning, no supernatural healing or answered prayer has ever brought anyone to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit has ever brought anyone to Christ. In John 16, verse 8, Jesus says, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If someone saw, sees a miracle of Christ and they, and they give their life to Christ, it was only because the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin, of the righteousness of Jesus, and drew them to Jesus Christ. When someone is rejecting Jesus, what supremely what's happening is they're resisting the Holy Spirit. The word blasphemy means speak evil or come against or really reject When Jesus says in verse 31 that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, he is warning the people that rejecting or resisting the Holy Spirit in the face of abundant evidence all around you is a sin that will not be forgiven. Put in its most simple terms, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the lifelong rejection of the Holy Spirit who is trying to bring you to Jesus. Now listen carefully. This is so important. What Jesus is saying here is it's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. It's a heart that is over time deliberately closed itself to God. Now, you you may say, well, that's not what verse 32 says. In chapter 12, verse 32 says, anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Ah, my friend, read on. Read on. Look at verse 34. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These people had rotten hearts. Look back in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad or its, it, its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. This is a hard thing. This isn't about someone who like blurts something out against God because they're mad. Oh, no, they're, they're, go, they're, they're going to hell. They won't be forgiven. You know, committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. No, this is a heart that degenerates over time in the face of overwhelming evidence. By God. Look at verse 35. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The words are nothing more than the evidence of a heart that has rejected God over time. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a sin just committed by a few choice people. It's committed by millions upon millions of people in this world who persistently over a lifetime reject the the work of the Holy Spirit who is drawing them to Jesus and then they die in their sins. Now, I don't know everyone in this room at least as much as I'd like to know you. But I do know this. God has worked mighty wonders in your life. 
you may not realize it, but God has worked mighty wonders in your life. And I'm convinced that if I were to sit down with each one of you, and you and I just walked through your life together from beginning to end, I'm convinced it would become obvious to both of us that God has guided you, he's protected you, he's blessed you in a supernatural way. He has worked in your life and he's brought you into this room today. The Bible says that after doing so many mighty wonders in your life, if you reject him after a life of drawing you to him, after doing so many mighty works in your life, you have committed the unforgivable sin. And if you go to your death rejecting Jesus, that is the only unforgivable sin by resisting the Holy Spirit for a lifetime and going to your death with that hardness of heart. Look what Jesus says in verse 31. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Even speaking an insult against Jesus, he says, any, verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. I tell you what, that's just a convicting, I mean, a convicting thing. You know, we, you know, we get all in a lather about people insulting us. Jesus, people insulting Jesus, it says. He says, well, I forgive people of that. In verse 31, it says, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how gory your sin has been, how many people you've sinned against, how often you've sinned. Jesus Christ will forgive all your sins. But if you reject him and continue to reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life over a lifetime uh, until your death, Jesus says in verse 32, that sin will not be forgiven you either in this age or in the age to come. How glorious a Savior we have. that He doesn't keep anything back. And we, we need to hear this today. It's a very intense word, but as always, there's an overarching message of grace that is so glorious and wonderful and uplifting. And the message is this. There's no reason for anyone, anyone, to reject Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And in him, you will find rest for your souls. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Isaiah 61.1 says, He will give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of despair. Who doesn't want that? Who's going to reject that? It's not like we're rejecting anything that's bad. We're receiving something that is glorious and wonderful. God's justice and His holiness requires that your sin, my sin, and every sin ever committed on this earth be punished. The Bible says that the punishment for that sin is death. And Jesus left heaven to come to earth and die the most agonizing, painful death in history, nailed to the cross where He took on the wrath of God for your sin and mine. How could we ever reject that kind of love? Now, Very important. If you have given your life to Christ by faith, if you made him your master and your Lord, by definition, by Jesus' definition, it is impossible for you to commit the unforgivable sin that Jesus is referring to because you have not rejected Jesus. If you've never given your life to Christ, here's, here's just the plain, simple truth. It is possible for you to commit the unforgivable sin. If you continue resisting the Holy Spirit in your life, God's wonderful works uh, in and around your life, and you never give your life to Him, and you die rejecting Jesus in your, in your heart, you can commit this unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about. 
if that describes anyone in this room, please come and talk to me about it after the service and, and we can settle in a moment's time that issue because all it takes is a prayer of faith, a prayer from the heart to stop resisting the Holy Spirit, to stop rejecting God's wonderful works in your life and simply receive him. It doesn't cost a thing. It's, it's something that is done by faith. And the good news is this. There's never, there's no good reason for ever rejecting Jesus. He gives beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for despair. What a wonderful Savior. And I'm glad that he doesn't keep these things back. It's just a valuable warning to, to all our hearts, even those of us who are in Christ about the gravity of resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the salvation which you have provided. That every one of our sins, all the gunk, Lord, no matter how much, how often, to whom, what, Lord, it's, it's all been forgiven by your very word. When you took our sin on the cross and you paid the penalty for it. When the wrath of God, the anger of God, was poured out on our sin in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. Father God, I just pray that you would fill this, this body of believers, Lord, just with an overwhelming sense of what that means, the grace that happened on that day 2,000 years ago, Lord Jesus, when... You took away the sin, the guilt, the pain, the sorrow. And we thank you, Lord, that it didn't end there. You raised from the dead, and you raised from the dead to pour out life on us, Lord. We ask this morning that you would pour out your life on us anew that we may understand your grace, that we may walk in your grace, that we may be a living, breathing example of that word, that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do that work in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, God bless you. If you need prayer, please come up.